a reading from the Gospel of John, verses 18 to 29, 19 to 28. These are God's words. And this is the witness of John, when the Jews sent unto him from Jerusalem priests and Levites, that they might ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed, and denied not, and he confessed, I am not the anointed. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elijah? And he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he answered, No. They said therefore unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as said Isaiah the prophet. And they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said unto him, Why then immersest thou, if thou art not the anointed, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I immerse in water, in the midst of you standeth one whom ye know not, even he that cometh after me, of whom I am not worthy that I should loose the strap of his sandal. These things came to pass in Bethany beyond the Jordan, when John was immersing. These are God's words. You may sit. In the previous section of John, in the prologue, we learn that Jesus is the word of Yahweh. And we learn, rather more importantly, what it means that he is the word of Yahweh. For those of you that were here, you will remember that last week was really an exercise in the importance of learning how to read scripture. If we do not know how to read scripture, then we cannot know what it means. And if we cannot know what it means, how can we apply it to our lives? It is both the duty and the purpose of every Christian to be transformed into the image of Christ, to walk in God's ways. And this happens through the Holy Spirit working to bring his scriptures to bear in our hearts. It is through the instruction of God's word that we come to know his mind, and it is because we have his spirit that we are able to know his mind, remembering, of course, that knowing God in scripture, as we saw last time, is relational and experiential and covenantal and fictional, and not merely intellectual. If the purpose of being a Christian is to be transformed into God's image by learning to walk in his ways and to bear his name into the world, and the Bible is God's instruction manual for doing this, then the first duty of every Christian is to learn how to read the Bible. This is a very daunting duty, because as we saw from John's prologue, God's word is often hard to understand. It is contrary to our natural way of thinking. It is written in a foreign language to an ancient people who were very different to us in many ways, and more importantly, it was written according to a wisdom and a pattern of thinking that is not of this world. So we have nothing like it to prepare us for reading it. Here at Redwood, we strongly uphold that the Bible is sufficient to teach us God's ways in all situations, that it contains everything we need to be completely equipped for every good work, as Paul tells Timothy. But we do not believe that the Bible's sufficiency to this task 
means that we will automatically or easily grasp every part of it. Peter writes, I think a little ruefully, that in Paul's letters, there are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures at 2 Peter 3.16. Which means, of course, that the other scriptures too contain things which are hard to understand. They require deep thought and sustained effort to come to grips with. And if we are ignorant or unstable, we will twist them and destroy ourselves. So there is nothing more weighty to the Christian than learning how to read God's word. God requires every one of us to work hard at knowing him and at walking in his ways. And thankfully, he helps every one of us in this duty by giving his spirit to illuminate our minds and empower our wills. But the Holy Spirit does this as we ourselves work to understand and apply his word. The passage Jared read from Colossians 1.29 applies not just to walking in righteousness, but also to the work of understanding righteousness from God's word itself. So Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, is what makes that work effective in our lives. Now, let me make a brief aside on this. This is not part of my main point, but it is important to understand that what we're trying to achieve here at Redwood is a commitment to this duty of working hard at learning God's word for every believer. This is a duty which applies to every single one of us. It is a duty of upward progress, which means that we will never tolerate a church culture that caters to the lowest common denominator. We are never going to build a church that expects everyone to work at a bare minimum level. And this does not mean that we want an elitist culture. We will never expect anyone to achieve more than they're capable of. We'll never look down on you for not knowing something or for not understanding something. We'll never think less of you if you struggle with some passage or if you get stuck on some theological concept or if you're surprised by a fact that other people take for granted. We all of us have many weaknesses and many blind spots. In fact, just this morning, I realized that my children can recite the books of the Bible better, better than I can. <laughs> but we will always expect you to strain yourselves. We expect you to try. We expect growth in knowledge and godliness. This is not a church for coasting or for coming to sit passively once a week. We want to build a church culture that welcomes every member where he is at, but simultaneously expects and encourages him to press on for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is the duty of every believer, and it is our duty as leaders to shiver you forward. That is the image that scripture uses of those who look after a church, shivying sheep. Pastor means shepherd. Now, it's true that we do not yet have pastors or elders in this church, but we do have gifts of teaching and pastoring, as Paul describes them in Ephesians 4. When, God, uh, when Christ ascended into heaven, Paul tells us, he gave gifts unto men. These gifts included first and foremost the apostles and prophets, and then evangelists, and then shepherds and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, unto the work of ministering, unto the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may be no longer children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and craftiness after the wiles of error, but speaking truth in love may grow up 
in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body, rightly joined and knit together through every joint with which it is supplied, according to the proper working of each part, that's all of us, maketh the body to grow unto the, under, uh, unto the building up of itself in love. That's Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. This is our hope and our desire for Redwood, a grown-up body that produces grown-up Christians. And let me add that it is my great hope that we should do this so well that the Christians that we raise up in the next generation outstrip us for wisdom and holiness and are far mightier than we are at building up God's kingdom. But in order to achieve that, you see, Paul says, God has given the church shepherds and teachers, or you could translate it as shepherd teachers. These are men who have a weighty duty of their own, which is helping everyone else in their duty of knowing him and walking in his ways. We do this firstly by preaching the whole Bible, explaining it clearly passage by passage that you may know God's mind. We do it secondly by teaching those in our care on a more personal level at other times how to apply what they have learned to their specific circumstances and we do it thirdly and perhaps the most difficult duty of all by leading through example and by encouraging and exhorting sometimes correcting and occasionally even rebuking this is the pastoral role of those who god appoints as fathers in the church and their duties are a natural extension of the duties of all fathers. God requires every head of a household to do a similar thing. Fathers are to teach God's ways to those under their care. They are to disciple their wives and their children. It is the job of the teacher shepherds to help them to do this. You see, it's discipleship all the way down. And this discipleship begins with knowing how to read scripture. So in this sermon... If I may set your expectations, we are actually not going to be looking primarily at the meaning of the text today. Jared and I are both committed to expositional preaching, passage by passage, but only in as much as this is a sound method for ensuring that we teach you the whole counsel of God. But to teach the whole counsel of God, sometimes we will need to set aside our regular expositional preaching in order to provide instruction on some more pressing point. For instance... When the government commanded all churches to stop gathering together last year, or when they tried to limit who could gather this year, that was the correct time for every pastor in every church to throw out his weekly preaching schedule and sit down and hammer out some instruction on who is Lord of the church and who is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Political theology should definitely not be the focus of every sermon, or even most of them. If it is, your pastor probably has a hobby horse, but political theology should also not be completely absent from every sermon, as becomes terribly clear just looking back at the last couple of years. In the same way, hermeneutics should not be the focus of every sermon either, but sometimes it is necessary to preach on hermeneutics in order to lay a foundation for expositional instruction from the text. Being taught to read scripture for yourself is just as important as being told what scripture says. More important. I will define it in okay, one second. Sure. So today I'm going to be preaching on what you could consider a topical sermon on hermeneutics, which I will define in one second, using our text as a launch pad and 
next week I will return to preaching the text itself. So, hermeneutics, I've used that word several times. Knowing how to read scripture is summed up in this word. Hermeneutics is simply the rules and the methods of interpretation. And interpretation is simply explaining what scripture means. So hermeneutics is the rules and methods that you use to explain what scripture means. Hermeneutics is the rules and methods that you use to explain what scripture means. Can I just say something there? Of course. And just to add to the teaching, um, we can also understand hermeneutics outside of scripture as well. So just so we get a, a love letter given to us from someone, you can have a, tip, a certain interpretive framework to, to see what's there. So if you see roses are red, violets are blue, um, you're going to think, okay, this is a poem. They're, they're not, this person's not trying to communicate to me the color of flowers, but they're wanting to make a poem so that, they, so that I understand how much they love me. Same thing would happen if you get a letter in the mail. You're going to have a particular kind of hermeneutic there. It's going to be a little, you're going to be expecting it to be a little bit more formal. So scripture has a particular hermeneutic, um, and you're probably going to get into this in more detail. But um, it's, it's like a diff, like this is a God-breathed, God-given letter, in a sense. So, um, yeah, hermeneutics applies to all writing, essentially. Yeah. Correct. Hermeneutics applies to all writing, and in the context of Scripture, it is the rules and methods for interpreting Scripture. In the context of something else, it's the rules and methods of interpreting that. Yeah. We've already learned two broad hermeneutical principles, or rules, by examining John's prologue. We learn, firstly a rule which is usually called the analogy of faith. And we learn secondly, a rule that I truly don't know if it has a standard name in theology because it's been all but forgotten in modern Christianity. Some would call it allegorical interpretation, but it's really not at all what that is. So I will call it the rule of symbolic realism. So let me remind you about each of these rules to refresh your memories before we go any further. Number one, the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is really just a fancy way of saying that scripture interprets scripture. You've probably heard that saying before. The Bible is the chief and final authority on reading the Bible. We saw a great example of this in John 1.1, where it really does no good to learn that Jesus is the word if we don't already know what the word of Yahweh is in the Old Testament, if we don't know that he is a character who appears many times and is also called the angel of Yahweh. The Old Testament tells us what it means to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We also saw how many allusions to the Old Testament scriptures John includes in his prologue, and we especially saw that it's really impossible to understand the Word becoming flesh and dwelling or tenting among us and John seeing his glory if we don't first know what happened in Exodus 33 and 34 with the tent of meeting and God revealing his glory to Moses. So that's the analogy of faith. Scripture interprets scripture. Scripture models for us how to read it. Scripture expects us to read one part of it in light of everything it contains. And scripture also shows us in other places, as we'll see shortly, how to interpret it, specifically by giving an inspired and infallible example of the correct interpretive method. The second principle of hermeneutics that we found in John's prologue was what I'm calling symbolic realism. This includes typology, and you could argue that it includes allegory, but it goes beyond this, or it improves on what I would, I would say it improves on the classic medieval allegorical method. 
what it means is that symbolism is at the very foundation of physical creation. And this has ramifications for how we read scripture when it talks about physical creation. A symbol, basically, is a physical expression of a spiritual reality. And what we learn in the prologue is that key elements of the physical creation itself are fundamentally symbolic. The major example of this that John uses is light. It's very clear in his prologue, and going back to Genesis itself, that light first existed as a spiritual reality in the word, and then God called that spiritual reality into physical being as what we think of when we talk about light. The late Bill Mauser, in his excellent book, The Story of Sex in Scripture, talks about how we say that Scripture describes God anthropomorphically. And actually, I'm quite confused on this point now because Jeff Meyer makes exactly the same point in exactly the same language in his book, The Lord's Service. So I don't know who said it first or if they're drawing on a common source. But the idea is that Scripture speaks of God anthropomorphically, anthro meaning human, and morphe meaning form. In other words, we describe God as if he had human form. The Bible speaks of him, for instance, of delivering Israel out of Egypt with his strong right arm. But Mauser and Maya say calling that anthropomorphism is actually backwards. God is not anthropomorphic. Man is theomorphic. Theos meaning God. We are made in the physical form of God's spiritual nature. The spiritual reality of God's power and control over the world, he made us to express physically in our arms. We are made in his image. <coughs> And this principle of symbolic realism is true with regard to history as well as creation. It is a key hermeneutical principle for understanding the relevance of Old Testament history to us. Paul models this method of interpretation for us in Galatians 4, where he explains, and here is the analogy of faith, he's giving us an example of how we are to interpret scripture. He explains that Hagar and Sarah represent two mountains and two covenants. Symbolic realism has very important implications for how we read scripture and what makes for a good so-called literal or straightforward interpretation. God models for us how we are to read his word by including examples of interpretation in that word itself. So if we are uncomfortable interpreting the Old Testament using the symbolic hermeneutic that Paul did when he saw two covenants in Hagar and Sarah, for instance, then we still have much to learn and much to practice in becoming proficient at reading the Bible. Please return to your place. Back to mummy. <laughs> A third rule of hermeneutics that we have simply taken for granted so far, as we should, I hope we've taken it for granted, is the most foundational one at all. I've given you two rules so far, but they are not actually the first two rules because they both assume this other one. This is a rule that I really hope we all consider obvious and indisputable, but experience tells me that it is best to be sure. So the first rule of hermeneutics is simply this. The meaning of the text is in the text. In other words, you have to read the meaning out of the text in order to find it. You cannot read meaning into the text. The meaning of the text does not come from your head. The meaning of the text does not come from your heart either. It does not come from our cultural reaction to the text. It does not come from the church fathers. It does not come from the reformed tradition. 
It may be found in any of those places to some degree or another, certainly in some places more than the other, but it did not come from those places. If they contain the meaning of scripture, it is because that meaning first came from the text of scripture itself. I don't know if you've ever been to a Bible study where people sit around in a circle and read a passage, and then each of them gets to share what the passage means to them. You probably know what I'm talking about. Well, to me, it, I feel like it's saying that whatever comes next is not read out of the text. Even if it is true, even if it is correct, it is a meaning that has been arrived at by a false method. It has been arrived at incorrectly. We'll see a great example of this when we get to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There are two words in there that have very specific meanings in John's gospel, loved and world. And we'll spend some time in that text determining what those words' meaning is, trying to read the meaning out of the text with the help of the analogy of faith. But for now, I'd like to turn to our text again in order to make one more point, look at one more hermeneutical principle in a bit more detail. In my professional field of marketing, there is a phenomenon affectionately called marketees by many of us. This is the language of marketers, boilerplate jargon that completely obscures the message that you're trying to deliver to the man on the street. You've probably had the misfortune of reading about companies leveraging bleeding-edge technical solutions or impacting performance with innovative best-of-breed strategies. This is marketees. Thanks to talky nonsense like this, I've spent over a decade of my professional life becoming increasingly sensitive to the effect of language on clarity. The importance of choosing precisely the right words is always in the forefront of my mind because in business it has a measurable effect on revenue. This mindset is not something that I can just turn off and I have found it actually very helpful for reading scripture. When I spend time studying a passage, I will often use an interlinear Bible and a lexicon and ponder whether the translation can be improved in some way or how I might go about paraphrasing it myself in order to be as clear as possible. Over the long term, this has led me to recognize that English Bibles, just like marketing literature, contain plenty of boilerplate jargon that tends to obscure meaning for the man in the pew. The pew. Marketing companies have trouble avoiding marketees, and Christian Bible translators have trouble avoiding Christianese. Should go without saying by now that our language shapes our theology. That's really just another way of stating the same point that I've been making this whole time. So dispensing with Christianese in favor of straightforward translations that use normal English words can often be very important for bringing clarity to scripture. So my fourth hermeneutical principle is to retranslate Christianese. You probably noticed two examples of words that I consider Christianese, which I retranslated in the reading of this passage. The first is Christ, which I have retranslated as anointed. And the second is baptize, which I have retranslated as immerse. One of these is less controversial than the other, so I will start easy and work my way up. <laughs> Christ requires relatively little explanation. Verse 20, he confessed and denied not, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. Christ is actually a Greek word, Christos. It means anointed one. 
So the reason that I think we should retranslate it is actually because it never was translated in the first place. Bible translators literally just took the Greek word and anglicized it. They made it sound like English. This is fine with names, because the purpose of names is to be a certain sound that represents a person, more or less. So you take that sound in Greek, for instance, the name Paulos, and you anglicize it and you get Paul. Or you turn it into Spanish and you get Pablo. Or you turn it into Russian and you get Pavel. Or Maori, you get Paora. But Christos is not a name. Not exactly. Christos is more like a title. Technically, it's called an appellative. It's very much like the Roman Emperor Augustus. His name was Octavian. That was his first name. Or well, actually, wow. It was his name. Augustus was an appellative that he took after defeating Mark Antony and Cleopatra. It's a normal word in Latin that literally means august, venerable. In the same way, Christos is not a name. It is a normal word that in Greek means anointed. And it is used that way in many places that are not talking about Jesus. The term is ascribed to Jesus, and rightly so, because he is the anointed one of God. But rendering it as Christ in English obscures the connection to the other places in Scripture that talk about anointing. It also makes Christ sound like Jesus' surname. So when we see John denying that he is the Christ... It is unnecessarily opaque for most English speakers. What is he saying exactly? There's no clarity. What does the Christ mean? What John is actually saying is that he is not the anointed one that the Jews have been waiting for. He is not the new Davidic king that God promised in his covenant with David. He is not the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has not been anointed to these positions. Anointing, of course, was done with oil over the head, and this ties directly into what John later says um, very shortly in our passage next week, or the week after. He says about the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. This kind, uh, the descent of the Spirit like a dove on top of him is a kind of anointing, an anointing by the Spirit rather than by oil. But this connection disappears if you do not translate Christos as anointed. So that's the first term. The second is more likely to get pushback. I hope you were not triggered by me translating baptism as immersion. I want you to understand, before I get into any of this, that this is a translation issue. It is purely about the best way to put a specific Greek term into English. I'm not making some broader theological point. Baptism as a theological concept includes more than immersion. Baptism is a symbolic pattern in scripture that includes pouring and sprinkling and also death and suffering and trial by ordeal and judgment and vindication and much else besides. But in terms of mode, the pouring out of the spirit in Joel 2 and the sprinkling of clean water in Ezekiel 36 are clearly connected with new covenant fulfillments in baptism. And moreover, Acts 1, 4-5 explicitly calls the tongues of fire that descended on the disciples a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is quite interesting because that event also follows the pattern of anointing. So if you or your babies were baptized by pouring or sprinkling, that is a valid and legitimate baptism, and I am not dunking on it. <laughs> this actually highlights my point, which is about a mistake that people make in hermeneutics called... 
the word concept fallacy. This is where you look at a word and you assume that it stands for a whole specific concept, a fully developed idea. So you see the word baptism, for instance, and you assume that an entire theology ought to be read into that one word. But baptism, like Christ, is actually not an English word at all. It is, again, a Greek word that has simply been anglicized. It hasn't been translated. The Greek verb is baptizo, make it an English word, voila, baptize. The question is, what does that word mean in Greek? Not what is the full theology of baptism, just what does that word mean in Greek? If you had to translate it into English, what English word should you use? Well, here's the New American Standard New Testament Greek lexicon. Baptizo, number one, to dip repeatedly, to immerse, to submerge, as of ships that are sunk. Number two, to cleanse by dipping or submerging, to wash, to make clean with water, to wash oneself or bathe. And number three, to overwhelm. Now, if we look to the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament that was completed about a century before Jesus, we find baptizo used for both immersing and overwhelming in 2 Kings 5.14. When Naaman dips himself seven times in the Jordan, the Septuagint translates this as baptizo. He baptizes himself seven times in the Jordan. In Isaiah 21.4, which the NASB translates, my mind reels, horror overwhelms me. In the Septuagint, it is the same. Horror overwhelms me, or literally, horror baptizes me. Now, why does this matter? In the case of our text today, I don't think it matters much. That's because when we read about John baptizing, we naturally read that as John at least pouring water over people's heads while they stand in a river, which arguably constitutes a dip in the river, although I think, in my opinion, he much more likely was actually immersing them fully. But we'll talk about the reasons for that theologically next time. But even in this case, there is a bit of a funny thing going on, because we know that this was John the Baptist. That term doesn't appear in our text today, but it does appear elsewhere. And when we read the term Baptist, we naturally think of someone who disagrees with certain Presbyterian distinctives. But John wasn't that kind of Baptist. So that's kind of a confusing word to use. And arguably a little prejudicial. You should instead at least call him John the Baptizer, as a couple of new translations do. But why not just use an actual translation? John the Immerser actually tells us what the Greek is saying instead of just giving us a Greek word in English that we then have to fill with our own meaning, which is a meaning that does not accurately reflect the Greek word itself, the way that it was used by the people of the time. The main reason this matters, though, is when we look to Scripture as a whole, there are other places where baptism is mentioned, and reading our particular understanding of the sacrament into those texts does not do justice to what they say. I'm not arguing at all that our understanding of the sacrament is wrong but rather that the word baptizo in Greek just doesn't have a full sacramental theology in mind. It just isn't what it means. The best example, I believe, is the Great Commission itself. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Think about how using the normal English meaning of baptizo changes things. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or even, go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, 
overwhelming them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You see that when we replace the Christianese term with a normal word, the text actually opens up to us. We see things we previously did not. This is the whole purpose of learning to read scripture well, to learn the deep things of Christ, to grow up into maturity, to understand the depths of the treasures of wisdom that are hidden within it. When we read scripture here at Redwood, the person reading finishes by saying, these are God's words, and we all reply, by them we live. Like pretty much all of our liturgy, this is taken from scripture itself, where it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The word of God is solid food. It is meat. There are parts of it that are too difficult for spiritual babies to chew and swallow. For instance, the author of Hebrews tells his readers that there are many things he has to say about Melchizedek, who's mentioned once in Genesis, briefly. Many things he has to say which are hard of interpretation because they have become dull of hearing. They need milk and not solid food. Melchizedek is such a mysterious figure. Yet the author of Hebrews is so good at reading scripture that he has many things to say about him which are hard to understand. And indeed, they are hard to understand. Yet we must become proficient in reading the scriptures in order to discern even the hard truths in them. Listen to how he continues. For everyone that partaketh of milk is without experience of the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. But solid food is for full-grown men, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Hebrews 5.13-14 You see, we are a church that desires maturity in the word, that wants to teach you about hermeneutics, not because we love theoretical knowledge. Not because we enjoy sitting in ivory towers using big words. Not because we are intellectually vain. On the contrary, we see in scripture that growing up into the scriptures is the very method by which God trains us to discern good and evil. Wisdom and righteousness are the same thing. You cannot read Proverbs without noticing that. And it is our goal to strain forward, to train hard in all the scriptures which are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we may all be complete and fully equipped unto every good work. Let's pray.